0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Row Bible Church. For more information, visit missionrowbiblechurch.com. You you see the, the, the visual up on the screen every week, clockworks of the Christian life. And what that means is that we're in a section of Romans that really is like pulling open the back of of an automatic watch or an automatic clock, and looking at how the gears function and how the springs function and how the dials are attached to all those inner workings. Paul gives us such a view into our salvation. In the book of Romans in general, but specifically in the passage that we're finishing up this morning that I think is really one of the highlights and one of the best views of the gospel anywhere in Scripture. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We've been looking at a series from verses 6 through 11 that we've really answered the question, what's so great about the gospel? We've answered it in five different ways, but in order to get a running start, since this is our last time in this section, I want to read the first 11 verses because it really climaxes and apexes in that final verse that we'll be studying this morning in verse 11. Romans chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, and remember, that, that's a summary of the first four chapters. He's saying that's what we've just studied. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. Proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless and At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received this or the reconciliation. At the core of every decision that you and I make, at the core of every postulate we put in our mind, really at the center of our decision-making processes in our thoughts, in our brain, is this question. We don't want to admit it. We might not want to admit it, but we really ask over and over every single decision we make, what's in this for me? What do I get out of that? Michael, did you really just amen that? (laughs) What's in it for me? A closer look at that question might lead you to think, though, that that's a selfish inquiry, that it's a bad thing to say, what's in it for me? But I would argue that, though it certainly could be selfish, at its core, this is a question that is a part of the image of God stamped on us, that he's given us the idea and the inclination and the capacity and the void to enjoy ourselves, to find happiness in this life. No one gets up in the morning, begins their day with this, what can I do today to ensure that everything I do will bring me no joy, no satisfaction, no happiness, no pleasure, no meaning. I want to have Eeyore's theology at my forefront. No one wakes up like that. As I said before, if you could evangelize a cartoon, Eeyore needs to be saved. Evangelize that guy. The truth is, all of us are on a never ending, always present search for what's in it for us, for joy, for pleasure. And that is exactly how God made us. But God has also made it, interestingly, so that everything we seek that we think will bring us lasting satisfaction. Dissolves. Turn for a moment over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We've looked at this uh, over the course of the last few years, but it's a a perfect illustration into the passage we'll be looking at in Romans. Ecclesiastes 2, while you're turning there... Ecclesiastes is Solomon at the end of his life, looking back at his life and the failures that he had made, the misapplication of his wisdom that he had turned on himself instead of turning to the glory of God and to please the people for understanding the fact that he, he could determine right and wrong and, and give them some kind of sup, uh, overseeing supersight of their judging of matters and understanding of God. He turned selfish. God gave him that ability, that wisdom And instead of using it for God, he actually says in chapter 2, I said to myself, now anytime you start with that, you're, you're in trouble. I said to myself, when you start having conversations with yourself and answering, there's a problem. Come now. I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. He actually says, I have, now remember, Solomon had unhindered power, And unending resources. How would you like to have all the money in the world to get anything, and I mean anything you wanted, all the power in the world to do and experience anything and everything that you wanted? Solomon had that. He was unhindered in his exploration in this experiment. He says, I'm going to test myself with all my resources, with all my pleasure, and see what in the world this world has to offer me to give me lasting pleasure and satisfaction. And behold... And when you see behold in the Bible, that's another way of saying, guess what? And guess what? After I tested myself, it too was havel is the Hebrew word, vanity, steam off a cup of coffee, there for a moment and then gone. So he tells us the experiments. He tries fun out in verse one, verse two. I said of laughter, it's madness of pleasure. What does it accomplish? He tried maybe just partying, having fun, always doing uh, pleasurable things, and eventually it all ended. So he turns to a second experiment in verse 3, intoxication. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their life. I tried to buzz. I looked for it in a bottle. Maybe if I can get high enough, maybe if I can get drunk enough, maybe if I can get intoxicated enough, I will find lasting satisfaction. You know what the problem is? You always sober up. It didn't last. So he tries a third. He tries materialism in verse four. I enlarged my works. Remember, this is a guy who had resources. And look at the, the the singular pronoun here. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. See a pattern already? I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had homeborn slaves. I also possessed. the the flocks and herds larger than all those who preceded me in Jerusalem. We'll see that in a minute. That's only two people, David and Saul. He's spiking the ball on his dad and the first king of Israel. I, I did better than they did. He got everything he wanted. Now, you and I know what it's like to want something. I'll bet you everything in my wallet. It's not a lot, but I'll bet it all, that you could answer in about a nanosecond. If I said, tell me something you want right now, you would know what it is. Isn't there always something we want? And there's the idea, if we get it, we'll be happier for it. And here's the, here's the great lie. We are happier for it for a while. And then you want something else to go with it or something else instead of it or something to put that thing into that stores it and something to clean the storage unit and a place to put the, it goes on and on. Then he tried another thing. He said, maybe I'll just, I'll just work the stock market. I'll get money. I collected for myself silver, verse 8, and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. Maybe if I just have wealth, if I have money, if I have potential, my portfolio is massive and I, I have my retirement all in, 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 uh, in line. Well, that didn't work. So then he tries, verse 5, excuse me, verse 8, entertainment. I provided for myself male and female singers. That, that That's, by the way, in addition to the Levitical choir, which was all male. This was a day before iPods and iPhones and radio and um, Pandora. If you were going to have music, it had to be live. He provided himself his own radio station right there in the palace, and it didn't satisfy. So then he tried sex, the pleasures of men, many concubines. And as As you find out in in, uh, Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, it did not satisfy him. He had a 1,000 women in his life, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and no sexual satisfaction. And then finally, verse 9, he tries competition. Maybe if I'm just the best. Then I became great and increased more than all those who preceded me in Jerusalem. Again, that's only two people, David and Saul. I was the best, I had all I wanted, I was at the top of my game. So what did he get for it? Verse 11. Well, look at verse 10. Can you imagine having said this? Can anyone say this? All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Anything I wanted, I got. Anything I wanted to do, I did. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. So what did he get? Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. Striving after the wind, there was no profit under the sun. Remember when you get the little three-year-old walking around your living room, you get the bubbles and you blow them, they go grab the bubbles, and they think they have something in their hand, they open it up, and shazam, there's nothing there. That's what Solomon had done. I got it all, I did it all, I tried it all, and it did not last. It didn't bring me joy that lasts or sustained. Look at verse 22. For what does a man get in all of his labor and all of his striving which, with which he does under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest, it's vanity. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his work, his labor is good. And this also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. He said, Look, there's a place where you work, you get, you you reward yourself. That's that's a that's the law of cause and effect. That's a good thing. It's from God. But then look at verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For a person who is good in his sight, the saved person, he has given wisdom and knowledge, and here's our word, and joy. Verse 25 ought to be an underlined verse in your Bible. Who can eat, who can have enjoyment without God, without him? Who can really enjoy life without God? That was his conclusion after trying everything else except God. And his answer is only God brings that lasting satisfaction. Jesus talked about this same thing in Matthew chapter 13. You know these, the two shortest parables, they go hand in glove with one another. Matthew 13, 46, 44 rather. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. Do you get this? He's walking across the field and he finds a treasure. No banks, no safety deposit boxes during those days. You have gold, you have treasure, you have money. You would go hide it and bury it. This man is walking across the field. The field had obviously an owner uh, who who didn't know uh, 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 what was in the field. The the owner who planted this treasure had obviously died uh, or forgotten about it. The assumption, I think, is this guy died. He wouldn't forget about it. It had traded hands and no one knows what was in it. This guy stumbles upon this treasure, kicks over a rock, finds the, the lottery, hits the lottery, and he hides it again. And he can't wait to go get the real estate papers on this property. And here's the key phrase. From joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why? Because all that he has is incomparable to that which he would gain by buying that field. Another parable, verse 45. And the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had to buy it. The key there is joy over it. There's joy in what he found in this treasure. And Jesus is using that to illustrate the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, the person of Christ, the greatness of salvation. So Solomon says there's no ultimate happiness, even though I've had everything, no ultimate happiness without God. Jesus says, because of the joy that you'll get from the gospel and from salvation, everything is worth losing. And now we find ourselves back in Romans chapter 5. Specifically, we find ourselves down here in verse 11. Now, verse 11 uh, introduces us to a word that we all know very well. We've met it already in this chapter. It's the word exaltation. See it there? We exalt in God. God is our exaltation. As we've said over and over, you have to distinguish the word exalt from the word exalt. It's easy to mix those up. Exalt means to lift something up. Exalt actually means to demonstrate overwhelming, uncontrollable joy emotionally, mentally, viscerally over something that brings you pleasure. He's already talked about exalting back in verse 2. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. We exult in heaven. Is there anything more exciting than the fact that this world will pass away, all of its its treachery, all of its its sadness with it, and our hope will be fulfilled in heaven? We can get excited about that. And then as we talked about it, he says in the next verse, we also exult in our tribulation. Who can do that? Who can be excited about tribulation? Only the one who, in verse 3, has that word circled in their heart. Knowing. That God is doing things in our tribulations, behind the scenes, unseen to us, that are for our good. Also, he goes on in verse 6 and says, we know not only what God is doing in our trials, we also know what he did for us in the gospel because of the love of God in Christ. Then he goes off in verse 8, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, God demonstrates his love toward us, not like other people demonstrate their love toward each other, that they would die the ultimate sacrifice for someone they like, but he demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, not just sinners, by the way, helpless, verse 6, ungodly, verse 6, sinners, verse 8, and enemies, verse 10. Christ died for us. Because of all that, we land on this word in verse 11 exalt. We exalt in God. Paul begins the section in chapter 5, verse 1, with a discussion of the benefits of justification being made right forensically or legally before God. And he ends it with a perspective of the relationship we enjoy because of God's justification. It's not just a legal matter determined on a piece of paper in heaven. This was relational. This restored us, it reconciled us as broken enemy wicked sinners hateful to God to being his friends. So he ends up this section by bragging, by boasting, by spiking the ball, by pounding his chest, by in the words of David, dancing, overwhelming joy, effusive praise. Why? We're going to look at that specifically. Now, remember, chapters 1, verses 1 through 5, justification gives us peace. Peace gives us hope. Hope secures us even during tribulations because we know God's doing something special even in that enactment of his providence that brings undesirable things into our lives. Verses 6 to 11, the love of God is demonstrated to us different than anyone else and toward us in an undeserved fashion. Put all that together, and we've been answering the question, what's so great about the gospel? Let me review for you. Beginning in verse 6, we see that the gospel satisfies the greatest need, our separation from God. It demonstrates the greatest love, God's love towards sinners. It extinguishes the greatest threat, that's hell itself. It mediates the greatest conflict, that's between us and God. And now we land, lastly, on the fact that the gospel provokes the greatest response. The gospel is going to give us the greatest response. Paul ends on our response to the good news of justification and introduces us to sanctification. So as we do this, look at this one verse. I want us to discover together three thoughts that fuel that gospel excitement. Three thoughts that fuel, engage, enlarge, feed, Our gospel excitement. Now, before we look at this, can I just ask you, how are you excited that you are not going to hell as a Christian, that you are going to heaven, that he has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness in this world? Are you excited that nothing in this world can harm you in the the, the essence of your soul, that the worst they can do, Luke chapter 12 says, is kill you, and that will just introduce you to God by sight rather than faith? If, since that's true, does that have any emotional bearing on the way you live and respond? I mean, if you were given a large gift, let's just say that someone tomorrow, let's say this afternoon, someone comes by, you're looking up all the March Madness scores, and someone comes by, knocks on the door, and you say, Son, daughter, go get that. I don't want to do it. They say, so, well, can I speak to your mom or your dad or or your friend or your, whoever you are? You come to the door and they say, look, I, I hate to interrupt your Sunday afternoon, but we've um we we've just been uh, collectively looking at uh, our estate. This is not one of those chain emails. This is actually true. And someone has left you $1 billion. Well, you just say, hey, thanks. I appreciate that. Word. Great. See ya. Very excited. Can I go back to watch the game now? If you had had every debt that you ever owed paid, and in addition to that, we're also given a billion dollars, so not only what you owe is gone, what you have is realized, would that generate some level of excitement? That's exactly what the gospel does in an immaterial and in a lasting eternal sense. It takes away the debt we have with God and gives us everything we need from God to please God and to enjoy him forever. That's where Paul has come from and that's where he's landing here in verse 11. So the first thought that fuels gospel excitement is in that first phrase, it's our great God. Our great God. Look at verse 11. And not only this. You just want to say what? We've been reconciled, loved by God as enemies, given perspective in trials, justified, made at peace with God. Not only this. What do you say after that? What can you say after Romans 5, 1 through 10? You would not anticipate Paul saying not only this, but he does. And here's the not only this: it's excitement. We also not only do we get this stuff, this blessed, unbelievable arrangement with God, but we also we get excited. We exult in God. I've told you what that Greek word "exalt" means. It's a very uncomfortable word. It means you're emotional. You weep with joy. You laugh with joy. You jump with joy. You raise your voice with joy. Whatever you do to get excited, nothing should draw that response out of you like the gospel. He's changed from talking about the theology of the gospel now to our response to the gospel. We exult. But it's not just the gospel. It's the God of the gospel. Look specifically at the language. We also are excited, overwhelmingly excited, express ourselves in God. Now, as I said, we've already met this word exaltation by the fact that we exalt in the hope of glory. That's to be with God. We exalt, knowing what God is doing in our trials and tribulations, that God is at work. It's all still God-centered. The point is that we are joyful and happy with God. Let's say it this way. If if this is a confrontation to your soul, just know that it is one to mine as well. A spirit-filled Christian who understands the greatness of God and the gospel cannot be unhappy. It's not possible. We can dislike things in this world. I wasn't happy when my parents died. But there's a joy that supersedes that. An unhappy Christian is an oxymoron. Peter says, you know, you're suffering under Nero. I want you to submit to the government. I want you to give your life to lions. Give your your life to being wrapped around a torch and lit for fires for Nero's parties and be happy. What? Christianity in its value system of deciding joy and happiness is counterintuitive Countercultural goes against everything and anything the world can muster up. It doesn't make sense. How can the martyrs under under Mary's reign stand burning at the stake and reciting scriptures, smiling, and singing hymns? Because their value system is not attached to this world. Look at the text. We also exalt. We're responsively emotional where in God. You're not going to be happy with every circumstance in this world. That's okay, as we've said over and over. That's God showing us the unhappiness we have with all the sadness and troubles in this world, removing our grip on this world to actually look forward to things to come. Evangelism in Kansas City, evangelism in Johnson County is hard. You know why it's hard? Because people don't see their need for Christ because they don't need anything. The point of evangelism is to first show people, you may have what you think makes you happy, but it's not going to last. It will run out. We, we exult in God. What is there threatening your joy? Whatever's threatening your joy in God, is that what you're trying to extract what can only be extracted from God, which is lasting satisfaction. Now, footnote, if you read the rest of Ecclesiastes, you can enjoy this planet. I mean, uh, you can drink orange juice to the glory of God. You can—you uh, cannot eat mushrooms to the glory of God. That is a fungus that was never intended to be eaten. It grows in dark places and moist places that should not, it's a bad thing, I just want to tell you. If anyone is going to, Enjoy this world. It ought to be a Christian who can say, look what God did. Look what God did. I mean, just, and I don't mean to be frivolous. You're standing in line at Krispy Kreme, and they get that straw, and they get off one of those hot donuts. Every other person on the planet will say, this is good. You know, we can say, God, how creative to make our tongues responsive to sweet And texture responsive to warm, doughy goodness. God did that. God did that. And I mean this. A Christian can enjoy this world like an unbeliever can't because we can see the creativity and the expressive grace, even common grace of God. But we also have the sense to know it's not going to last. But God will. Everyone is an exalter. What do you exult in? What gets you excited? God and God alone can trump any sadness that you and I experience with joy. That is the message of the New Testament, isn't it? No matter how bad you think it gets, God is better. In fact, I think sometimes God dims the light on our life so that his light is turned up. D.A. Carson says, all you have to do is live long enough and you, as a Christian, and you will suffer. Why? Because God wants you to see that there's there's a heaven that's worth living and dying for. Philippians 4, you know it well. We sing it, we say it. Rejoice in, what does it say? The Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, again, I will say, Rejoice. He says it twice. Rejoice where though? In the Lord. Don't miss that. Rejoice, be joyful, exalt, be happy in God. Then he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. There's a reason to rejoice. I mean, here's a thought that ends every other thought. Did you know that God is here right now? He's here right now observing you and observing me, and interacting with us as if we are the only human alive. He has that kind of capability. He's near. Then he says, because of that, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, not some things, not your favorite things, not a few things, in everything by prayer and supplication. Then he puts that footnote with what? What's the word? Thanksgiving let your request be made known to God, and now we find it again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts. Notice it doesn't say, be anxious for nothing, seek God, prayer and supplication, and he'll fix all your problems. I don't know how to say this. Paul said it better than me. God, do, does your theology include this? that God wants you to continually have problems so you don't get too comfortable here on this planet. It's his intention to do this. So we will seek God. The peace of God rules our hearts. It doesn't necessarily change our situation. It gives us perspective. It will guard your heart. And this is guard your mind. It will help you to think rightly about your sorrow and your tribulation. Now there can be some easing of those things. Come back tonight. We're gonna to look at your responsibility of the body of Christ, and you and I are responsible to find and meet those needs in others that we can alleviate some of the, the thorns of this planet in one another. Finally, whatever is true, honorable, right, good, pure, lovely, anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So, do you rejoice in the Lord? Do you exalt in God? Is He the object? Is He the person who makes you happiest? Secondly, not only our great God, our great Savior, look at the next phrase. We exalt in God. How do we exalt in God? Look at the means here. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an interesting construction that Paul uses in the Greek that comes across in the English. It's the basis of our exaltation. In God, it's the son of God. There's a stack of descriptions here. Each one of them have meaning. He doesn't just, don't just let those fly by your mind too fast. Three descriptions, Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord, he's the master. We are the slave. He calls the shots. We are to be the the ones who are obedient. He is the kurios in the Greek, the Lord, the one to whom we uh, admit our, our every will, our every decision, I ever fancy he's the Lord. As we've said over and over, you don't make Jesus Lord. You know, there's this theology that says accept him as Savior and then make him Lord. Who makes Jesus Lord? God did. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. 92 times, Jesus is referred to as Lord in the book of Acts, only twice as Savior. That's where the accent is. Then it says, the Lord Jesus. Why Jesus? He could have said the Lord. He could have said the Lord Christ. Why Jesus? That reminds us that he is a carpenter, a simple man from Nazareth. He never wonders, Paul never wonders far from the fact that Jesus was not only fully God, he was truly human. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that connects the Old Testament hope for the Messiah with the New Testament manifestation of the incarnation in Christ. But can I suggest to you that this morning, as important as the word Lord is, and as important as the word Jesus is, and as important as the word Christ is, there's a word even more important for you and me. It's the word our. Our. Is he your Lord Jesus Christ? Are you in the our category? Do you know Christ? Are you a believer? Believing the Christmas story and believing the Easter story doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Believing that George Washington crossed the Delaware doesn't make you an American. The gospel has three components it's facts you believe theology about those facts that you embrace and response to that the- theology and to those facts called repentance. Is Jesus your Lord? Not perfectly. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. But is he your Lord? Is he your master? Does he run and call the shots in your life? If not, three times in Matthew 7, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Even though they called him Lord, even though they did things in his name, they weren't believers. Why? Because they didn't bow the knee to his oversight and lordship. They had faith without works. Are you a part of the hour? Our Lord Jesus Christ, are you a part of us? Are you a part of the helpless, ungodly, Enemies, sinners, in this passage who Jesus has redeemed and saved as a gift from the Father to the Son. Remarkable. Do you understand, do you enjoy, do you embrace our great Savior? Knowing that He is our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is is a fueling motivation to respond appropriately in exaltation to God. First thought that fuels gospel excitement, who God is, what he's done. Second is our great savior. The means that God saved sinners is his son, his only son, the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly, our great salvation. This is where Paul just explodes. We exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, here's our we again, are you a part of the we, have now received The reconciliation. Now, a quick Greek lesson, which also comes across in the English here. There are active and passive verbs in the Greek language. An active verb is something you do. A passive verb is something that's done on behalf of you, something done for you, something done to you. This is a passive expression through whom we now have received. We didn't do anything except receive the reconciliation. God is the initiator in reconciling himself to us, were it left you and me, we would have run as far and as long and as hard as we could away from God. But God in his grace picked some of us off. John seventeen nine. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you, God the Father, have given to me, God the Son. Who is the giver in salvation? God. Acts thirteen forty eight. 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as had been appointed to eternal life. We're passive. How are we passive in salvation? For you were dead. In your transgressions and sins, dead. How can dead people respond to anything? That's the point. You can't. God raises the dead at the resurrection, yes, but he raises the dead spiritually in giving, in in reconciling, in granting belief. God is the initiator. We received reconciliation, our fixed relationship with God the Father through the death of God the Son. He did all that. And what kind of initiation was that? that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. I will tell you a hundred more times in the book of Romans this overwhelming illustration. I love Mission Road Bible Church. I, I, love, I love you so much. I pray for you. This is it's a precious place. But there is not one person in this room that I would sacrifice one of my sons by death, to save or to love. If it was between you and my sons, sorry, you're ready to see Jesus. You're in trouble. Just wouldn't do that. Not what God did. Do you understand to reconcile his wrathful disposition with our sinful nature and expression that he killed his son he killed and sacrificed. It pleased God to crush him, Isaiah 53 says. Does that make you exult? Does that cause a response? Does that provide a humiliating, humbling, overwhelming trauma in worship? Jesus is the means of our change from being enemies of God to friends of God. Verse 10 began Paul's trajectory and aim of talking about that reconciliation. Remember what we looked at last week? For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? If he did the greater work of killing his son for us? Won't he do the easier work of saving us in the end from his wrath? Is there anything greater than sacrificing your son on behalf of your enemies? Surely he'll save us as his friends. Then he goes on to talk about that reconciliation here in verse 11. Through whom we now, Jesus, through whom we have received this reconciliation, this state of not being in trouble with God anymore. I will never forget where I was driving when we were talking about the gospel, one of my sons and I, and he said, Dad, the best part about the gospel is that you're not in trouble with God anymore. And he's right. This reconciliation, though, is not just a gift. It's also a ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, we looked at it briefly last week. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Who's active and who's passive in that? Who's the reconciler? God is the initiator who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us that ministry of reconciliation. Do you understand what we have in evangelism? We are ambassadors of God. God reconciled us to himself, and he says, take this, this exchange, take this message, and you go take this as a ministry yourself and tell people that they can be reconciled to me too. We should be running around. People just say, "You're not, I, got, I got saved from God's wrath by his son. Don't you want to be too? This wonderful, childlike, overwhelming desperation that we want people to be reconciled because God has given us that ministry. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Look at the active nature, the reconciling character and initiation of God. Not counting their trespasses against them. Does that not just make you breathe a sigh of incredible relief that God will not count our trespasses against us in the final judgment and committed to us the word of reconciliation? Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. Because he's reconciled us, we are now champions and preachers of reconciliation to anyone. Then he says this. This is almost hard to read. Think about this in these terms now. Now, you know this verse, but think about this. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though, listen, as though God were making an appeal through us. Is that not overwhelming? When you're telling someone the gospel, you are the megaphone and God is the voice. How intense does he talk about that? We then beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled, passive again, be reconciled to God. Because he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Your salvation makes you happy. You want other people to be happy too. My wife is constantly getting on me about something. I'm I'm I am a I'm a food sharer. I, I'm if I like something, I, I want everybody to have a bite. I, I mean, she says so many times, honey, I like what I got have at it. Especially when it's fish, she's not a big fish person. Honey, the salmon is delicious. You need the salmon. The salmon is good for your physical heart, your spiritual heart, your worship. This is this is an expression of God. You need a pa- And she goes, No, I, you like it so much, I'm gonna let you have it. I I you know what it's like to have something that you just want someone else to enjoy? That's the picture of salvation. Look at what we have. Don't you want to have it too? Look at how it tastes. Taste and see that the Lord is good with me. It all comes back to we exalt in God. Morris Roberts says this The thought of God should be the Christian's panacea, it should cure all ills at a stroke. The thought of God. Just the simple thought of God. Why? And what an infinity there is in the thought of God. Nothing can approach in beauty to the idea of the true and living God. That there exists a being who who is infinite in power, infinite in knowledge, infinite in goodness. And that that being cares for me with a perfect love as though I were the only man in existence that he loved me before I was even born and created me to enjoy him eternally and that he sent his son to suffer the agony of the cross to secure my eternal happiness, that surely must be the thought to end all sorrow. Does it? Does the thought of God end every sorrow? Only if you understand, believe, and have embraced the gospel. Let's pray together. Forgive us, Father, for having thoughts so inaccurate, so low, so foreign to These thoughts that Paul has given us, we easily understand how easy it is to not be excited. Cause us to have exaltation. Cause us to be excited. Motivate us and stimulate us and fuel our minds with great thoughts about you and our Savior and our salvation. Fill us so full of The thought of you that to run into someone is to spill that knowledge all over them. And we understand that this is only fed because of your word. So, as Paul said, knowing what you're doing, knowing who you are, knowing how we were saved by your son. That makes all the difference. It's a game changer. So, Lord, help us to know more of you for our good. Because of Jesus, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.